O God, we need thee. Hide your speaker behind your cross. Decrease your preacher so that your word may increase with power, clarity, and conviction. May the church say amen. Amen. You may take your seats. Today's lection comes from Proverbs 8. It has already been read for your hearing. I just want to emphasize verses 10 and 11. Proverbs 8, 10 and 11. Take my instruction instead of silver. Take my knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than rubies, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. All that you may desire cannot compare with her. The title of today's sermon is A Word from the Wise. A Word from the Wise. Biblical language is metaphoric in character. This is true of all primary religious discourse. How else could we ever articulate the indefinable encounters with the sacred and elusive experiences of the divine? The Lord is my shepherd. God's a shelter in the time of storm. Such linguistic constructions connect the unknown to the known, make the abstract and the abstruse concrete and comprehensible. This is why metaphors serve an important function when it comes to expressing the beauty and the wonder of God, the happiness the joy that is love. But while biblical metaphors have their place, metaphors also have their limits. Too often we forget that metaphors are just that. They are non-literal comparisons, not literal statements of fact. And when we fail to keep before us the symbolic nature of such speech, it is too easy for us to get trapped into the, the religious labyrinth of biblical literalism. This is why, for some, God can only be viewed as a father. And this is why, for others, God can only be regarded as a warrior who will destroy our enemies. But the truth of the matter is that metaphors often say more about the communities that create them than the object it seeks to describe. Images used to conceptualize our view of the sacred reveal the structurally embedded sentiments 
and culturally ensconced values of a community. A people's conception of God says so much about the very community. Consider the ways in which the Bible is replete with highly problematic gendered metaphors. The majority of biblical illustrations reveal an androcentric world characterized by patriarchal dominance and misogynistic violence. Israel, as an adulterous harlot who entertains scores of lovers. God, as a jealous husband full of rage. The nation, as a feminized streetwalker who looks for love in the embrace of other cultures. And God, as a vengeful and violent responder who's warranted in his response, yet still ultimately faithful and committed. In the words of Wake Forest biblical scholar Phyllis Tribble, if art imitates life, scripture likewise reflects it in both its holiness and in its horror. Recall the prophet Ezekiel. In describing God's wrath in the 16th chapter of his book, the prophet declares, I will judge you as a woman who commits adultery. I will deliver you in the hands of your lovers and they will strip you of your clothes, take your fine jewelry and leave you stark naked. They will bring a mob against you who will stone you and attack you and hack you into pieces with their swords. Then, like a quintessentially abusive spouse who seeks to make amends after such a violent outburst, the prophet declares on behalf of God, after these things, my wrath will subside and my jealous anger will turn away. I will be calm and no longer angry. How sick. How sad. But this is what happens when patriarchal masculinity is projected upon God. We end up with a picture of a husband that is as violent as, and menacing as he is seductive and manipulative. Overt displays of love and affection justify abusive behaviors as if ultimate commitment to a covenantal relationship excuses such baleful behaviors. It's inexcusable. It's intolerable. Whether described as a characteristic of man or as a characteristic of God. Yet too often. Like this example from Ezekiel, women are represented in the worst ways in order to make a point about God. This brings us to today's lectionary text. Similar image is used, similar imagery is used in the seventh book of Proverbs. In this ancient wisdom literature, a man is offering counsel as to the choices a young man should make. 
we are thus introduced to a woman in Proverbs 7 who comes out to offer this young man fulfillment. The writer describes her in Proverbs 7 as having fine linens from Egypt, a perfumed bed, and a husband who is away on the road. She's offered up in Proverbs 7 as a foil in preparation for her counterpart in Proverbs 8. In chapter 8, in Proverbs 8, she's called Sophia in the Greek, which translates in the English to wisdom. The writer suggests that the young man has a choice to make. He can choose promise and happiness. He can choose the promise of happiness and fulfillment in the arms of an adulterous woman in Proverbs 7. Or he can choose instruction and knowledge found by choosing wisdom in Proverbs 8. Now there's nothing new or distinct about this tale of instruction here in Proverbs. This mythic archetype of evil, of the evil temptress over against the chaste woman, uh, this is prevalent in the ancient world as it, was, as it is today. Does anyone here remember Heracles? You may recall that Heracles, a son of Zeus, was afforded the chance to follow two women. There was a beautiful, well-adorned woman who promised a life of happiness and wealth. Or there was the demure, modest woman, the modest maiden, as she is described, who encouraged sacrifice and service to Greece. The former's name was vice. The latter's name was virtue. And while, brothers and sisters, I do not mean to belabor this point, I feel it impossible to preach from this assigned lectionary text today about Sophia, about wisdom, without identifying the highly problematic and sexist framework from which her character is constructed. In fact, I want to offer this as my first word from the wise from Sophia this morning. For when it comes to this sort of injustice, you and I have an obligation to speak up. Sophia says it in verse 6 in Proverbs 8. I open my lips to speak what is right. Not what is popular. Not what is culturally accepted. Not what will allow me to blend in with the crowd. But what is right. And as an ethicist, I understand that there's always competing notions of the right, the good, the just, the fitting. But you and I must raise our voices against any behavior that degrades and demeans human personality. Any behavior, whether it's a law or whether it's just simply an unjust custom. Anything that degrades human personality must be spoken out against. We must raise our voices to speak up about what is right. Now, some of you may hear the inflection of Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail here. If so, you are correct. 
Ah, citing the Jewish philosopher Martin Buber, God calls human beings to be in relationships. This is the argument that Martin Luther King Jr. lays out in the letter. God calls us to be in relationships of respect and mutuality. In other words, I vow relationships. Not relationships that regard others as objects or things. I-it relationships. Relationships that are based upon the value and affirmation and affirms the dignity of every human being as equal in the eyes of God. I-thou. And whenever our words... Whenever our deeds, whenever our cultural practices relegate fellow human beings to the status of things, you and I have a moral obligation to raise our voice in protest. Raise our voice in protest even if, or should I say particularly if, it means raising our voice against ourselves to question our own complicity in the practice. For many of you in the class of 2013, you are about to leave the cocoon of Harvard and spread your beautiful wings to the far reaches of this world. Sophia, wisdom, is encouraging you on this morning not to leave your moral compass in Cambridge. Your voice, even in small and subtle ways, can make a difference in your community. It can make a difference on your job. It can make a difference amongst your new peers. Whether it's naming gendered glass ceilings placed over the heads of the women who work alongside of you. Whether it's challenging homophobic and heterosexist locker room chatter that takes place around the water cooler or whether it's creating opportunities of inclusion and mentoring people who do not look like you, you have the opportunity to speak up. Use your voice. Be a moral thermostat that can impact the climate around you, not simply a thermometer that reflects what are often the insensitive and unjust practices of the day. Now, lest I paint too rosy of a picture here, I need to tell you, and I have to confess, we all know this, speaking up is never easy. The Greeks called it parhesia, frank speech, or bold speech for the common good. Bold speech that takes place even at the risk of personal loss. Thus, parhesia comes with a price. Sophia realizes this in Proverbs 8. This is why she privileges herself over material goods and luxuries. It's in verse 10 and 11 that I wanted to emphasize for you at the beginning of this sermon. Choose my instructions instead of silver. Knowledge rather than gold. For wisdom is more precious than rubies and nothing you do can desire, nothing you desire can compare with her. 
Thus, the second word from the wise this morning. Not only must we speak up, we also have to be willing to give up. For it is much easier to obtain all of the material accoutrements of a hyper-materialistic society by following prevailing trends than it is for us to engage in the practice of parhesia, speaking up on that which is right. Exclusivity, the consolidation of power, Regarding life as a single elimination tournament where we only worry about our own success. All of these things can place us on the fast track to financial largesse and material comfort. Yet I hear the voice of Jesus asking, what does it profit to gain the whole world and lose your soul in the process? Well, this is one way to approach it, the way Jesus approaches it. But Sophia seems to reframe the matter. She raises the question implicitly. Do you really want what you're giving up? Or might it be that silver, gold, and rubies are serving as insufficient placeholders for the things that your heart really desires? To cite Martin Buber once again, you cling to the it because you're really seeking that. You cling to things because you really have your heart set on community. We accumulate material wealth when we really long for true fulfillment that comes with increased knowledge and wisdom of the world around us. Could be. In a way, this reflects aspects of the French philosopher René Girard, what he called the mimetic character of desire. The things we want in life are not based on the inherent value of the thing itself, but rather by the way that such things are modeled by others. It's not the thing we want per se but rather we want the life of the model. It's advertising 101. In Gerard's words, all desire is really a desire to be. We do not want to keep up with the Joneses. We don't want what the Joneses have. We want to be the Joneses. Or more positively, we want to be in community with the Joneses. Yet we settle for the clothes on their back or the cars that they drive rather than entering into human community with the people, the person. Could this be the reason why our culture of conspicuous consumption always leaves us feeling empty yet addicted at the end of the day? The attainment of objects invariably lets us down. Yet we need more. We need more out of life than to regain the fleeting high of silver and gold. Sophia, she offers us another way. 
Seek knowledge of the world. Embrace wisdom. Embrace prudence. Embrace, embrace phronesis, practical wisdom. And when you seek these things, it will not be as difficult to give up your insatiable desire for the things that will never ultimately satisfy. So wisdom. She calls us to speak up. She calls us to give up. And finally, wisdom calls us to give out or to give back. It's in verses 20 and 21. I walk in the way of righteousness, she says, along the path of justice, bestowing the rich inheritance upon those who love me and making their treasuries full. Sophia is calling us to both embrace her and follow her as an example. For when we accept knowledge and wisdom, it's much easier for us to forego the conspicuous consumption of silver, gold, and rubies. But the opposite of conspicuous consumption, brothers and sisters, it is not thrift. It's not saving toward the end of abundance. The opposite of consumption is generosity. Sharing the rich inheritance that was bestowed upon us because we realize that at the end of the day, every good and perfect gift comes from the Lord. To the members of the class of 2013, as well as the many of you under the sound of my voice on this morning. You've been primed to assume positions of leadership in all fields of human endeavor. There is little question whether or not you will live well by most standards. The question is, will you live wise? Will you speak up on behalf of what is right? Will you give up wrongly attained fortune for a right and just society and beloved community? And will you give out and share some of the rich treasures that God has afforded to you? For there are millions in this world that are craving. They're craving all the earthly pleasures that this life might afford. But none of these things could ever match the wondrous treasure that is found in the love of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So fill our cup, Lord. We lift it up, Lord. Come and quench this thirsting of our soul. Bread of heaven, feed us till we want no more. For fill us up, Lord, with your wisdom and make us whole. Let the church say amen.